On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation harnesses the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org forward slash discoveries. Spiritual border crossing and social creativity. These were some of the echoes in a conversation between Shane Claiborne and Omar Saif Gobash. Though they are two humans with very different stories, they've both lived with some discomfort within the religious group to which they belong and have chosen and continued to love. Omar is a diplomat of the United Arab Emirates and author of Letters to a Young Muslim. One of his responses to the politicization of Islam in the early century has been to bring a new art gallery culture, places for thought and beauty, to Dubai. Shane Claiborne is a singular figure in evangelical Christianity as a co-founder of The Simple Way, an intentional neighborhood-based community in North Philadelphia. One of the things he's doing now is to adapt the biblical commandment to turn swords into plowshares for modern times. You know, I just spent 40 days traveling around the country, melting guns into tools. But there's something that happens at the forge that goes beyond words. It moves the heart to see folks from different faiths, from different backgrounds that come and take the same hammer and beat a piece of metal that was designed to kill into a piece of metal that is designed to cultivate life. Shane, an indelicate question. Uh, what is the time between receiving the guns and actually converting them into uh, something artistic? About uh, 10 seconds. Okay, good. You know, there's all these Christian pastors that keep telling their, their people to bring guns to church. And they really? Mean, like, yeah. Because we should have guns in church. We're like, this is insane. So we have BYOG Sundays, bring your own gun. But we, <laughs> we lay them on the altar and we melt them down. And we don't uh, let 10 minutes go by without chopping one of those in half. So... Yeah, so they come with a gun, they leave with a plow. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. This conversation took place at the invitation of Interfaith Philadelphia. We met in a synagogue, Congregation Rodef Shalom, in a month that had been preceded by violent global attacks on a synagogue, a mosque, and a church. Just before I came out here, I checked Twitter. I'm sorry to say that I do that a little obsessively at times. And this is what came up. Someone named Kasim Rashid uh, saying, my faith and my duty as a neighbor command me. If any synagogue in Virginia needs help with security, I'll stand guard. An attack on a synagogue is an attack on all houses of worship. And then Rabbi Latz replied to him saying, and if your mosques need us to stand guard, I'm there, my brother, I'm there. Our love is stronger than their hate. So my point is, this too happens on Twitter, and this too, this too, is the story of our time. Tonight, what I want us to engage on is less about what you stand over against um, than the generative story that you are both trying to write and make uh, beyond, for, for the beyond of this moment. How the traditions and communities that you are distinctively part of shape the lives you lead and the lives you're working to influence and 
how you understand your traditions and the, the lives you live within them to distinctively contribute to the reality of this moment of great global tumult in which each of us is working out our lives of faith and theology and spirit as civic beings. I want to start, um, Omar, with you. I have this question I always ask, whoever I'm speaking with, which is, if I ask you to think about the religious and spiritual background of your childhood, uh, how would you begin to talk about that? Wow, very complicated then, I'd say. Yeah, it is complicated, Uh, with you. Uh, if I could just say, uh, on my way here, and over the last few days, I've been thinking, uh, I don't necessarily have this you know, very uh, peaceful or at peace message to come up with. I'm, uh, for me, uh, these questions are still very active and uh, uh, still, uh, you know, with every single terrorist incident, I think, um, again and again about the, uh, the issues that uh, we talk about and we're going to probably talk about tonight. Yeah. Um, so my, my uh, mother uh, is Russian. She comes uh, from a uh, traditional Russian Orthodox background, even though she grew, grew up in the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, my father was a, uh, a Muslim who died in 1977, uh, Arab Muslim from the Gulf, uh, the uh, Arabian Gulf. And uh, since he died when we were very, very young, uh, it was very difficult to, to get any kind of moral compass. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't as though we were integrated into a wider community. Uh, and uh, so I spent a great deal of time trying to understand exactly where we fit into the world. Yeah. Um, you know, my Muslim friends, uh, who were more traditionally brought up, uh, would be, were brought up in a, a very homogenous community, uh, both parents, uh, Arab, Muslim, uh, they could trace their lineage back, you know, maybe not a hundred generations, but at least three. Uh, right. We couldn't do that. And so we were, we were missing that kind of uh, net of meaning. And so I, I looked for it in literature. I tried to find it in, in the school mosque. I tried to find it at, uh, uh, with my you know, sort of foreign friends. Uh, overall, it was, I'd say it was a very, very uh, difficult experience. And when I was about uh, 12, I became incredibly devout to the extent where I, I describe myself now uh, as a fundamentalist. Uh, an extremist, actually. And uh, I discovered, actually, that for, for that year of extremism, uh, I got actually a bit depressed because I had cut myself off from all of my friends, whether they were Christian, Lebanese, or, uh, or Muslim, but not devout enough. And it was a, a, miserable, a miserable year. Uh, right. so, yeah. um, I think your book is a letter, letter to a young Muslim, and it's directed to your son, but it's also very much about your father. Yes. Who you lost when... You were six? Yes. He was shot and killed in 1977 at the Abu Dhabi International Airport. That's true. And I think it was the shooter was a young Palestinian, and actually the intended target was a Syrian minister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very um, moving how you... you I, I feel like in the, in the act of writing to your young son, you also excavated part of yourself. You, and you have these... These ages, these numbers, these ages Hmm. that were thresholds for you coming out of that experience. And one of them was six. Mm -hmm. That when your son turned six, you could see how he was at six and that that's how how old you were when you lost your father. Yes, absolutely. And then Uh, 19. 19. 19 is the age of uh, the young man who killed my father. And it was at that age that I said to myself, I, I looked forward to that age to ask myself whether I could conceive of uh, taking up a weapon and killing somebody. And when I reached that age and I was like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm still a child, I have no idea what's right and wrong in this world, and I, but I do know that you can't do that. 
And so that is also, uh, that was a big kind of uh, age for me. Mm. Um, well, there's more to talk about. We'll keep talking. Shane, um, many years ago I asked you this question about how you start to describe the religious or spiritual background of your life. What I think is a little bit magic about that question is that it changes depending on where you are in your life. So I'm curious how you would start to talk about that now. Well, I, I grew up, as you know, down south. I've still retained a little of my southern charm yes. after 20 years in Philly. <laughs> but I, I mean, it was the Bible Belt, you know, and... Um, we had Christian music, Christian bumper stickers. We even had Christian candy that was testaments. Kid, you're not, you can't make mints wrapped in a Bible verse. And, and that was my world. And somehow through all the clutter of that, I, I did fall in love with Jesus. And that's uh, my tradition growing up was the United Methodist Church. Um, but then it felt a little like lifeless at times, so I, I levitated towards a uh, Pentecostal church in the town, and I, I got rebaptized because they didn't do the sprinkling thing. You had to go all the way underwater, so I had to do it again, you know, and, but I really like, just kept leaning in, falling deeper in love with Jesus and, and seeing the Spirit sort of moving in different traditions, um, and then I, I really began to find myself conflicted with a lot of the um, things that had come to characterize e evangelical Christianity. Uh, I, ironically, you know, we, I mean, we also had country music down south, so it was like, you know, we had songs, this house is protected by the good Lord and a gun, and if you come uninvited, you'll meet them both, son. Like, that was, so I saw, it's like, wow, this, this is different, you know, and, and, um, and, you know, people think of evangelical Christians, and they think anti-gay, anti-women, pro-death penalty, pro-military, pro-guns, uh, and, and those things, uh, the deeper I fell in love with Jesus, the more I felt myself at odds with many of those kind of political values. Um, and I ended up coming up here to Philadelphia and continuing my quest uh, towards my faith and learned a lot from Catholics, learned, uh, worked in India for a while with Mother Teresa. So I've just kind of kept learning uh, what it means to be Christian. And I found that a lot of Christians are good at defining what we believe, but not translating that into a real way of living. And that's why um, we, we, we worship Jesus, but we, always, we don't always do the things he told us to do. So that's the last 20 years, we've been forming a little community here on the north side of Philly, yeah. which I, I invited Omar to next time you're in town. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, but we, we well, love it. And talk about the, the origin story of A Simple Way. Yeah. Um, started in 1995 uh, with you becoming, you and I think some other students becoming aware of dozens of homeless families who had moved into an abandoned church in North Philadelphia and were being told that they had to get out or be arrested. Yeah, Eastern University where I went is about a half hour outside of uh, the city and um, we had read in the newspaper, I'll never forget, one of my friends just came and threw down this newspaper and said, you got to look at this. And what the newspaper article talked about was the response of the Catholic Church, which was to, that they had 48 hours to get out or they could be arrested for trespassing. <laughs> Something about that just didn't quite feel right, you know? And so, um, but these, these families hung a banner on the front of the cathedral and it said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday 
and ignore one on Monday. <laughs> and it was catalytic for us. Many of us organized uh, a student movement at our college and others and, and really uh, came to uh, stand in solidarity with those families who, who lived there for months and months, and many of them got housing. They're incredible friends and heroes of mine to this day. And it was out of that that we, uh, ironically, in the ruins of that abandoned Catholic church, our vision for what it really means to be church and to live out um, our, our faith uh, was, was born You know, out of that. We, we kind of said, let's stop complaining about the church that we see and work on becoming the church that we dream of. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a live conversation with Shane Claiborne and Ambassador Omar Saif Gobash. You two can speak to each other. So if you want to jump in and ask a question or, or respond to something that the other says, you don't have to be dependent. Go through me. Um, so I want to talk about something that I think is quite different. One, frust- one uh, impatience I have sometimes with um, kind of simplistic ideas about what it means to have a civil conversation is that somehow we just celebrate what we have in common and, and don't actually focus on our really beautiful and fast, like the particularities that in fact make us interesting to each other. It seems to me there's a core dynamic in the trajectory the two of you have been on, which is quite different. So for you, Shane, I mean, you've said somewhere that the critical piece of formation in, in your path and for a simple way is this the discovery of community. And yet for you, Omar, there there's this tension between revelation and reason. And for, for you, the countercultural move is actually asserting the importance of the individual. Yes, exactly. Well, a few, a few days ago, somebody said to me, as a political figure, he said, you're a rebel. And I said, no, I'm not a rebel. I just don't like groupthink. And he said, exactly, you're a rebel, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I get worried when everybody in a room agrees on something because I think you're hiding something or you, there is something you don't see uh, and it, it just doesn't feel healthy. And so I, I need to push back. But there's also, it's also because I feel that, um, especially with the rise of the, the internet and, and, and all of these social technologies, even before social media, there was, uh, in a sense, a discovery of the, the world around us. And as we were growing up in the Middle East, it was a very bleak kind of existence, a very bleak outlook, uh, very little color in it. And all of a sudden, you saw all of these different things that could entice you, that right. sort of set off buttons that allowed you to begin to say, actually, I, I identify with these things and not with those. And, uh, you know, we all wear the same clothes in, 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 the, in the Gulf countries. Yeah? All the men dressed mm-hmm. in white, we all look the same. All the women dressed in black, they all look the same. No sign of any individuality. But as you, as you observe people, you begin to see these tiny instances of, of individuality. And I think that's, that's uh, a growing movement. And if it's being uh, displayed in, in our uh, outer form, uh, it's certainly bubbling up underneath. Uh, and I think that's something also the political authorities uh, are beginning to understand. Uh, it, it's taking place, but they, don't, they have no idea how to really uh, relate to it. As you see, you know, the, the um, change in, in leadership in Algeria, the, mm-hmm. the protests in Sudan recently, right. all of this is a sign of people wanting to live their lives, not the life that the community insists that they lead. Right. 
Jane, talk about, you know, because in this culture of extreme individualism, I, I, there's some place you um, described, oh yeah, when you, that when you started um, The Simple Way, you talked for many, 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 many hours, summing up the entire mission as love God, love people, and follow Jesus. Um, but then you it had took to, us a long time to get yeah. back to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but then you, but over the years now, you've had to put so much flesh on those bones, mm. and the balance between orthodoxy and orthopraxis—what is believed and what is lived—but that the holder of all of that is community. The accountability is community, and it's kind of un-American. <laughs> well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, as I, I, I think of community um, and I think of God, in my own faith journey, I've come to see God as an expression of community. And, I mean, we would talk about that as uh, creator, son, spirit. You know, that there's this kind of dynamic of God that is communal, and we're made in the image of God. And uh, when the first human is made and the breath is breathed into the dirt, It's not pronounced really good until they're helping one another. So that communal image is there from the beginning. Um, And, and, uh, uh, but I think what I, like related to this, what I would say is that oneness doesn't mean sameness. And uh, unity doesn't mean uniformity, but actually the most powerful unity happens in the midst of diversity. So I, I like saying that we are about harmonizing but not homogenizing right we're all kind of singing in a symphony and it's beautiful because there is a diversity um rabbi arthur waskow from philadelphia great teacher and hero in our city he he talks about sameness as the way of empires and corporations they everything is uniform but the creator made diversity so all of us have a unique fingerprint and dna and there's this beautiful diversity built into everything that god has made so i i love that um it's also part of why we have so much division i think is we can't find that unity in the in in the midst of it so um it's it's a wild dichotomy, right? Even in the Christian church, I mean, I wrote we wrote this uh, book of prayer called Common Prayer, and as we were trying to bring Christian traditions together, we found out that there are over thirty thousand Christian denominations. <laughs> and Jesus' longest prayer is that we would be one as God is one. You're like, wow. <laughs> We got to get this thing together. So, uh, but yeah. So I think that's that's part of the 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 the, the tension that we. Yes, hold. and there's something utterly natural about that too, right? Even as it makes things very challenging. Here's a line. Here's some lines from letters to a young Muslim that I love. Life is diverse. Living is to live with difference. Anyone telling you that difference should be stamped out is stamping out life. Mm. Those people insisting that there are black and white answers to the difficult questions are stamping out the diversity that is inherent within us. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I liked it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should um, collect questions. 
Just pass them down. Okay. Can, can I just respond also? Yeah. Uh, I'm not against community. I just want community to expand its sense of who, who can belong. Oh, I know you're not against community. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just that the emphasis for you is, is different. I had to justify my individuality since I, I felt excluded from the community right from the start. Wow. So hmm. I had no choice but to accept that I was different. People can be very idealistic about their values, but when, when push comes to shove, I had a Russian mother. Wow. Yeah. It, it mattered. And no matter how hard I tried, you're not fully a member. Uh, and so I began to sort of, rather than persecute and torment myself for being uh, different, I realized I couldn't be responsible for my parents' choices, um, but I could redefine the value. And I could actually begin to say, actually, I, what I thought was there must be so many people who feel excluded in the same way that I do. Mm -hmm. And it, I discovered that actually the vast majority of people feel that they're excluded and they have to you know, sort of bow down and submit to some uh, leader type uh, mentality out there. And, and something that you also come back to again and again in your letters to your sons just gets at one of the, I say, a very mysterious tension about being alive. And you're a diplomat, which to me fits with this that you know that yeah. you were saying, and, and and Shane, you do this in your own way too. Reality is complex, and and the moral challenge is very often in areas of gray. It's very often where uh, the black and white answers, which which we all actually long for, and which our traditions um, sometimes provide, where that's not enough, where we still have to develop moral conscience and make complicated decisions to live with the, with the world as it is and not as we wish it to be? Well, I, I noticed that uh, amongst very kind of uh, extreme preachers uh, in the Islamic world, they'll often talk about the beauties of nature and you know, how they want to withdraw into the mountains or into the countryside and live like that. And I think, well, that's, that's all great, but you're not actually uh, testing your faith in uh, the city where really that's where life is really complicated and you should be helping people to actually achieve their faith in complex environments. Mm. I hope yeah. I persuaded you with that. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, I, there's there's a lot of those same tendencies in in the uh, Christian tradition too. To uh, there's a lot of communities that pull themselves out of society oh, to sure. try to be this utopian kind of thing, and that was true even in Jesus's day. These folks that would, you know, uh, the Essenes and other groups that kind of moved out of uh, the world. And Jesus's teaching is that we would be light in the darkness. Is is uh, at the very heart of what community and community is for me a part of that is like the way that you put a fire out is by scattering it out and the way that you keep a fire alive is by stoking it so community for for us I think is about um, keeping that fire alive and it's easy to blow out a candle but hard to put out a fire and I, I think the intersectional justice and all the stuff that we're talking about is finding ways that we can sing this sing the same song of love right now mm -hmm. I also think as a journalist that this narrative, this reality, the, the fire, you know, that you say it's bigger than we realize and the story you're telling about, this quiet evolution that, that is happening that's not in the New York Times today. Mm. Um, no, it's not. No. Uh, yeah. I, we also have to take as seriously the, the, the generative narrative, the things that are going right. 
And actually, yeah, in journalism, which is the official way we tell the story of our time, we absolutely privilege the catastrophic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I heard someone say we don't cover planes that land. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, if, right. if, if it bleeds, it leaves. That's, yeah. And, so yeah. I, and I, I think in the Christian church, too, it's very clear that some of the loudest voices haven't been the most beautiful and some of the beautiful voices haven't been amplified like they should. And I think that's true in almost every tradition. You know, we've had extremists for hatred that no one kills with more passion than when they think God is on their side. And so they've hijacked the headlines with hatred. And you can have one pastor in Florida that burns the Quran, and all of a sudden, like, that hijacks the narrative of what Christians But that's such a good example, because that pastor in Florida who, who burned the Quran... The evangelical community of that city rallied against that, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And that story didn't get told. Right. It was this one outlier, and he got all the investigation and all the coverage, as though that told the story of the whole, which it didn't. There's so much of that. That's why we like on being. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One hour a week. <laughs> After a short break, more with Shane Claiborne and Omar Saif Gobash. This conversation was the capstone event of Interfaith Philadelphia's own year of social creativity, including partnerships, major public gatherings, and trainings. Their year of civil conversations was inspired by and drew on On Being's Civil Conversations project, especially our six grounding virtues and Better Conversations, a starter guide. You can find these and learn more at civilconversationsproject.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, spiritual border crossing and social creativity with evangelical Christian innovator Shane Claiborne and Ambassador Omar Saif Gobash of the United Arab Emirates. He wrote the book Letters to a Young Muslim. Reverend Jesse Garner of the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia took questions from a live audience at Congregation Rodef Shalom. If you could go back to immediately after 9-11, what questions do you wish we had been asking each other then? And are they the same questions that we would ask today? That's such a good question. After 9-11, immediately. I'll let you go first. <laughs> Shane, you thought about this a lot. Well, I, I think after every tragedy, we, you know, it exposes our, our character in the midst of the rawness of that. And 
Um, I, I was just with some of the Amish community after that were, we, we've been melting guns into plows uh, around the country. And one of those was um, we melted a gun in the, the uh, Lancaster in the area where um, there was a terrible school shooting in the Amish school uh, over a decade ago. And, and the response of the Amish was stunning. They, they were lost a bunch of their kids, but then they went to be with the shooter's family to accompany them in their grief, and they pulled their money together and began to create scholarships for the children of Charlie Roberts that killed their kids, and they went to the funerals together. And out of all of that, there was immense healing that did not ignore the, the terrible thing that was done, but that did not mirror it either, you know. And, and I, I had the chance to meet the mother of Charlie Roberts and. um and she told the story of this Amish man holding her husband as they just wept together. And we reflected on that. And I think like part of what we've got to do is, is have a chance to ask the questions of how do we live in a world where violence and hatred is real without mirroring the same thing that we're trying to heal the world of, right? So how do we, in in fighting the beast, not become the beast? And that's certainly what happened right after 9-11 is we became the very um, violence that we abhorred. So I I think that's, that's what I would hope for, is that we would have a moment to pause and say, like, what is really going to heal the wounds of what happened to us? And how do we respond uh, honoring the anger and fear and pain without, without extending that trauma and exacerbating those wounds and creating a whole bunch of new victims that lose their kids in the same way we lost ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're on. Oh, wow. Okay. So I've been given a few minutes to think about it. I still haven't made progress. Uh, I, I, I go back and I was saying, what could we have done? And I think in the Arab world, we should have asked ourselves some serious questions and given ourselves honest answers. The issue was that we said, it's a question of our image in the West. And so we want to go and hire all these consultancies and all these you know, lobbyists and, and start thinking about you know, setting up uh, TV channels. And the reality was that you know, we, we had to look at, at the, the machine, the religious machine that we had set up, and, and to a large extent, you know, what was being funded either, either by governments or, or by private individuals. And you know, it may have been it, it just sort of inertia or laziness or uh, you know, f- fear of well, people like me. We didn't have the, the opportunity to really uh, speak to the right people about uh, what was going on. Uh, So again, access to power, uh, and then the security in which you could speak to that power. Those are questions that that may have hindered some some of uh, the the progress that we tried to to make. Uh, And so, you know, my personal reaction was art gallery, uh, then spending two years trying to persuade New York University to open in the the Emirates. And Mm. the reason, the reason for New York University, and somebody said, well, why don't you go to Columbia? And I said, because I want it to be downtown. I want, to, I want downtown to understand us, yeah? uh, where, where the pain uh, took place. And these were all indirect methods of kind of repair, repairing the damage and allowing us also to reflect on, on what had happened. Yeah, in the Emirates, we're not particularly responsible for anything. And yet, as Muslims and as uh, people who, I suppose, had maybe turned a blind eye to radical thought uh, and who had treated e- either as a joke or as something that was to be taken seriously but never conceived of actually taking place, 
Uh, I think that uh, I, I go back and say, with, with hindsight, it was it was it was grossly negligent on our on our part. Mm. How does art in the Middle East bring about change? Uh, well, my my uh, reason for opening an art gallery was because I wanted to access the minds of those around me. Uh, you know, we I, I felt that we were always wearing different kinds of masks, and we weren't necessarily uh, open to the idea of discussing things. But I, I wanted to see how people perceived the world around me, and uh, you know, so there's a lot of what came out initially um, in, in the art gallery was very political art, very kind of violence-oriented art or reactions to violence, and then I felt that was a little boring. You know, it was a bit obvious, and you know, we we managed to expand. Um, uh, well, uh, we managed to find artists who were doing other things and all of a sudden what we realized was actually um, people started replicating this model of having a gallery that was a platform for artists and now in that area we, we, we had a, a warehouse uh, and we were opened illegally that whole area has now been redesignated as an art district and kids are actually finding that they're able to express their anger, frustration, uh, the, the turmoil, they're, they're able to express themselves through uh, art and actually um, make a living as an artist. And that was always something that was in my mind, that you couldn't be an artist in the Arab world, or at least an art part of the Arab world, because it was inconceivable, just as you couldn't be an economist because there was no data. Yeah, you had to beg the government for data. Uh, you couldn't be a philosopher because nobody was interested in listening to you, or because you wouldn't be able to put your ideas out there in the first place. There, there's no platform. So, I mean, well, art was just one way in which we could tackle those issues. There are a whole bunch of other ways as well. I was thinking, um, Shane, I, I looked at the, the, the mission statement, I think, of the simple way is together cultivating a neighborhood we can be proud of. And I actually thought, Omar, that this was a version of that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was, didn't, wasn't pride, it was a desire to influence the world around myself yeah. uh, in a way that I could, could do, because I, I couldn't change government policy, but I could, with a, with a tiny pinprick, uh, set off a little, yeah, I mean, the, the art gallery, I can't believe, has actually survived so long, um, but it has, and, and it, it led to, there was a snowball effect, so that was very exciting. Mm -hmm. we, we talk about social change, we, we need social creativity. Yeah, right? yeah. We need social courage. Yes. And and that's that's the dimension of this that you're that you're nourishing. Yeah, I think I'd agree yeah, with that. Yeah. yeah? I, I think that that uh, w there's a beautiful writer Walter Brueggemann that talks about the prophetic imagination. And he says, well, sometimes we, uh, we misunderstand the biblical prophets and we think that they were just trying to foretell uh, the future, but they were actually trying to change the present. They were trying to lead us into a different future, to stir our imaginations, to refuse to accept the status quo as normal and to build something new. And one of the things that... Um, the prophets Micah and Isaiah speak of is beating swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks. And that, that imagination is what um, kind of stirred our work to invite people to donate guns. Because we, we don't have a, don't have a ton of swords, but we have a lot of guns, <laughs> you know. And uh, so we invited people to donate them. And, you know, I just spent 40 days traveling around the country melting guns into tools. But there's something that happens at the forge that goes beyond words. It's that imagination, creativity, and it, it moves the heart to see folks that may not 
from different faiths, from different backgrounds that come and take the same hammer and beat a piece of metal that was designed to kill into a piece of metal that is designed to cultivate life. Yeah. And certainly something that, like, I think conservatives and liberals often have in common is that they've lost their imagination and they've lost their joy, they've lost their hope, and we kind of end up rehashing some of the same arguments over and over again. Shane, an indelicate question. Uh, what is the time between receiving the guns and actually converting them into uh, something artistic? About uh, 10 seconds. Okay, yeah, we, start, we You know, there's all these Christian pastors that keep telling their, their people to bring guns to church, and they really? mean, like, oh. because we should have guns in church. We're like, this is insane. So we have BYOG Sundays, bring your own gun, but we, <laughs> we lay them on the altar and we melt them down, and we don't uh, let 10 minutes go by without chopping one of those in half, so... Yeah, so they come with a gun, they leave with a plow. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Shane Claiborne and Omar Saif Gobash, who served as ambassador for the United Arab Emirates to France and Russia. How have relationships with people of other faith traditions impacted your own prayer life? Mm. Well, in, in my life, I've, uh, I find that I seek them out. Uh, so when I was in Moscow, I was in Moscow for 10 years. Uh, some of my closest friends were you know, the, from the Lubavitcher community. We got on incredibly well. I loved the uh, you know, sort of nuggets of wisdom that I was uh, showered with. And uh, it, was, it, it was wonderful to reach out to, to the, you know, essentially the other side. And... Um, I think also when I was at boarding school, uh, my exposure to the sermons on, well, actually we, we were in chapel almost every day, so there was a sermon every day. Uh, it, it showed me a different way in which you could communicate about faith. And uh, I certainly think that, you know, our, our part of the world, the, uh, the traditional kind of sermon on Friday used to be a very, very fiery, uh, aggressive and violent type of denunciation of everybody else. Uh, and I, you know, felt that I actually knew everybody else. And I thought that that was unfair. So I think some of that is now sinking into, you know, our own consciousness that, you know, the other is not so horrible. Mm. Boy, I've, I learned so much being um, among... Uh, Muslim communities as I uh, was in Iraq and especially like just about the devotion I'm thinking my gosh it was hard for me to like spend 10 minutes in quiet and like hear you know multiple times a day this prayer life and um, and so I learned a lot from that about discipline and centering ourselves in prayer um, and the commonality I mean I've, I've learned to read my own faith better by listening to others and one of my very, uh, rabbi friends he says uh we were talking about the death penalty. He's like, we don't agree on some things, you and I, but the death penalty, we totally agree on. He said, the, the Jewish community did away with the death penalty a long time ago. He, said, he talks about all, the, all that worked itself out. And he says, the irony is, it's Christians that are abusing Hebrew scripture to justify the death penalty. And you guys have the nagging problem of Jesus to deal with. <laughs> so I, uh, I love it. You know, I, I keep finding my, my own faith deepened as I talk with others and pray with others. I think that, that in fact, is the paradox of meaningful uh, interfaith or cross-religious relationship that um, that you at one and the same time actually the soil beneath your own feet is richer. Mm. You know your own identity better and the world is larger 
because of the existence of this. I see. It just popped into my head. Last Christmas, I was actually in uh, in Moscow, and it was Christmas evening, and I was at a synagogue. They have restaurants in the synagogues there, and uh, I was with one of the chief rabbis. They have two, and it was a it was a very very strange evening. A Muslim, uh, a Jewish rabbi, and uh, we were celebrating Christmas. So. <laughs> <laughs> Each in his own way, of course. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that all the questions from the? Okay. Oh, I want to thank you, Shane, for um, you have this language. I always I feel like with words like interfaith, they don't quite sum it up, and and there are a lot of you know interfaith ecumenical is another terrible word. I remember this um, Paulist priest saying. Ecumenism is that which, if we had a better word for, we would have more of. That was his definition of ecumenism. And I, I feel like it's so important when we're, when we're speaking of these experiences, which in fact are transformative, that we, that we try to always keep a really fresh and vivid ecosystem of words and kind of say what we're saying rather than let these labels. And you, you have this language, which I feel is a synonym for uh, interfaith, Shane, spiritual border crossing. Mm. I like that. <laughs> mm. I'm just going to ask two more questions. Um, I feel like we've been touching on this, but I want to go a little more deeply into it. It's true that both Islam and Christianity have a self-understanding of themselves as religions of peace. And we've talked about some of the ways... Uh, Peace is not where we are. But I'd like to know, and, and you, Omar, you really go into this in the book. You really reflect on this. What, what would it mean, and what does it mean to you? That, that, that the empty phrase doesn't do it, but it can be meaningful. So what, what does it mean for you, and how does it manifest well, I'm, I'm that still, Islam is a religion of peace? Well, I'm, I'm still uh, discovering it. I, I do realize that it requires... Um, more than just individual conviction. It actually requires uh, um, political conviction. It requires direction of financial resources, these choices that people can make. Uh, it requires, strangely, even regulation, um, bureaucracies, um, you know, either taking apart bureaucracies or putting, putting them together. And, uh, yeah, what, what I try to do in, in my book, in a very sort of short manner, is to uh, almost poke fun at the idea that we're a religion of peace, and yet we're at war with ourselves and everybody else. Um, you know, I also think a little about the patriarchal systems that we have in place. Uh, I spent a bit of time speaking to, um, well, I spent a bit of time in Jordan with very religious uh, people, very, very devout. And, you know, you speak to the head of the family, and he was fine with the, the system. And, you know, Islam is a fantastic thing and we're, we're all about family family values and, and you speak to the women and they're like I can't wait to get out of here you know it's emotional violence and psychological violence uh, and and so when I thought you know when you think about peace and you think about you know, extremism and terrorism there's also the the, the micro terrorism the micro extremism mm -hmm. the micro violence that mm -hmm. takes place within all of these homes so that's where I really think we need to make, make some changes, so that we're not so uh, used to the violence that happens in our everyday life that we can then take it out into the, the broader world. Mm -hmm. uh, I am very, very optimistic, though, given the changes in the in political environment uh, in, in the Gulf states and the Middle East today. Um, but, yeah, okay, in the next hundred years, we may make some progress. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah one, one of my friends and... Richard Rohr, uh, Father Richard Rohr, he says, the, the best critique of what's wrong is the practice of something better. Mm. 
And there are lots of versions of Christianity that to me, they don't look a lot like Jesus. <laughs> so I see that. And, and I, I think one of the questions becomes, whatever our faith is, as we're worshiping God, is it making us more loving? Is it making us more life-giving? And, and because I, I think we end up um, replicating the God that we worship. And so sometimes what's so important is what is the character of the God that we are uh, adoring and loving and who is hopefully changing us. And, um, and so, you know, in, in communities, sometimes you get a lot of donations and you end up, uh, you know, before you drink milk, you want to smell it, you know, have it pass the sniff test. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of, Christianity doesn't pass the sniff test. It doesn't smell like Jesus. It doesn't feel like love. And, and for a lot of our face, I think that's the question is, does it smell like love? Um, because no matter what our theology is, if, if at the end of the day, it doesn't help us love more deeply, then I wonder if we're really leaning into the God who, in, in my faith tradition, says God is love. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, we see God present among us. And so that's, that's really um, what, what faith should do to us, I think. And, and, uh, and when we see distortions of our faith, that's the power of Muslims that are speaking against ISIS and extremist forms and risking their lives doing that. And I feel the same duty to... Um, try to sing a better song than some of the toxic Christianity that has distorted my faith. And what we've seen are some of the, the deep roots of that that are so problematic um, and so unlike Jesus and the, the values. And, and, but I'm hopeful because I see a whole generation that's rising up. And I think that you know water doesn't boil one big bubble. It, it begins to steam and it begins to bubble up. And I see that happening all over our, our country right now. Um, and, and people of many different faiths, many different intersections of justice, joining hands and saying, uh, none of us are free until all of us are free. And, and we, we, even though we, we may find ourselves at odds with some of the people of our own faith, we will find ourselves joining hands with people of folks of other faith that share in common this vision of love and justice and freedom for everyone. So in, in uh, response, I've got to be really brief. Uh, I despair at the state of the Arab world. Uh, I think the state of the Arab world has an, obviously a tremendous effect on global Islam. Um, uh, I am hopeful because my sabbatical ends in September, so I'll be back to work. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll take care of it. Of course. <laughs> I... Um... You know, I, I don't know why. Why is this event taking me back to the early days of the show? But it is. Um, there was this question when I started talking about speaking about this subject, this aspect of the human enterprise. There was a question about whether that could be relevant to the world. And, and whether if people did have religious lives, public radio listeners, if they didn't just want to keep it private. We're arguably in a more tumultuous moment now than we were then. And yet I feel like this conversation, well, first of all, I feel like everything you've been doing in this city for the last year and have poised yourself to keep doing 
And this conversation tonight is such a witness that while uh, the institutions of religion, like all of our institutions, are in flux now, every all of them are being remade. Um, the, this voice from deep inside religious tradition, the insights of theology, the wisdom that comes from this relationship with text uh, over millennia, with, with the conversation across generations that is at the heart of our traditions, uh, is very, is profoundly, you know, relevant is not a big enough word. So I'm really grateful for this demonstration of that. And, um, and again, grateful to all of you for creating this space for us to have this vivid reminder. Um, thank you for having On Being in Philadelphia. And thank you, Shane and Omar. Shane Claiborne is the founder of The Simple Way, an intentional community in North Philadelphia. He's recently written a book, Beating Guns, about the movement he co-leads to transform America's guns into garden tools. His other books include The Irresistible Revolution. His Excellency Omar Saif Gobash is now the Assistant Minister for Cultural Affairs in the Cabinet of the United Arab Emirates. He was formerly ambassador to France and Russia. His book is Letters to a Young Muslim. Special thanks this week to Abby Stammelman-Hockey, Amanda Skates, Preisinger, and all of the wonderful people at Interfaith Philadelphia and to Ray Stokes for his wonderful sound engineering support for this event. A grateful shout-out also to our longtime friends and partners at WHYY Philadelphia. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, and Colleen Sheck. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind, learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org discoveries, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org, Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group, the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. 
the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota.